the ministry of Graceview Church. In South Haven, Mississippi. On graceviewchurch.org. At graceviewchurch.org. <laughs> Let's hear from Pastor Chris. You, you got all kinds of different people. And they have different gifts and different abilities. And so you have to leave people room to be themselves and to do what God called them to do. The only thing you don't want to be doing is not doing something God called you to do or doing something he did not call you to do. Those are the dangers, but they're pretty rare. Most of the time, we just do what he called us to do. I am very motivated. Not going to not do stuff. There are different kind of callings and different situations. Some people just want a guy who's just going to like, you know, sit in an office and once in a while talk to them and stuff. And I think from the very nature of my getting to know y'all, y'all are people that want to do stuff. Well, here's the thing. When that kind of dangerous combination comes together, it tends to be that stuff's going to happen. So when we talk about things, like uh, we've been talking a little about property and that kind of thing, I want you to know that if the presbytery starts planting churches... In one way it has to do with you, but in another way it doesn't. So people came up to me and said, are we going to be expected to like go to these places? Well, I wouldn't expect really anybody from here to go to any of those churches. Now here's where everything's going to start to get a little mystical and weird. I know that a lot of you are businessmen and you have a lot of different business experience. And one of the things you need to know is what your consumer or customer is going to be, right? You don't set up a tractor supply in New York City, Right? You don't have a John Deere. I bet you could drive all through Manhattan and never see a John Deere outlet, right? Uh, but the church is not like that. The church is a little bit dangerous in that sometimes you build it and God has to take care of the population himself. When the Apostle Paul went, he went to all these places where there were no Christians, where he had no church, and he just started preaching, and God took care of gathering the people into himself. So when we talk about uh, planting churches, we're not really expecting it to disrupt the daily life of this church in any way. I think is a great compliment to us and to you. And really, you know, they trust us to carry the ball. But those churches would be populated with other people that you and I do not know and have not met. And eventually they would call another pastor that you and I do not know and probably have not met. Uh, might we help them along in that process? Well, it usually tends to be something like this. They're not established as a church yet. They haven't grown to be able to take care of ourselves. So probably, although, you know, uh, there's no actual church to do it with, probably our session would be the session of that church while it's in its infancy and grows into being its own church. And Presbytery would tend to pay for it with some money to support that church. If you recognize this system, it's right out of the Bible. The Apostle Paul did this. He gathered for other churches in the church of Galatia that was under uh, persecution from the church at Ephesus that was more rich. So uh, the thing is, uh, if you think about the term ambition, there's a good and a bad connotation. Ambition for Christ is always good because Christ is incredibly ambitious. He took over the world, for goodness sake. Now, I know there's still rebellious factions within it, but he's conquering them one by one until they're all beneath his feet. The Apostle Paul traveled the world three times because he was an ambitious evangelist. Churches, the normal state of any church is to grow to the place where you can't take care of any more people and then to plant. That's what they do. That's what they've always done. If it's not doing that, there's probably something wrong because that's the way it is in the Bible. It's the way it'll be here because it kind of has to be. 
There's nothing else to be done. Are we just going to try to collect people and then hold on to everybody so we can have power and authority, so we can be impressive to the world, start to build bigger, shinier, prettier buildings? It's all dangerous to us, right? One of the things an old pastor told me when I was real young that I eventually learned was true is never have too pretty a building. It attracts the wrong kind of person. (laughs) That's what he said to me. It took me 30 years to understand that. But I kind of get it. You don't want people to be attracted to the things. You want people to be attracted to Christ, right? In this, we'll get into our text today, which will be in John chapter 8. And like most of the things we've been going through in John... He's rarely saying what we think that he's saying. This is a very famous verse, again, like we went over John 3.16, and then we read the uncomfortable and unfortunate John 3.17, 18, and 19. Now here Jesus is saying in John chapter 8, from verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. A light of life. Now, isn't that beautiful and wonderful? And it's actually soothing, and it feeds our souls. It strengthens us. But contextually, he goes on so we can find out what exactly he's talking about, which is not just our personal experience or spiritual noumena. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Notice their response is he was bearing witness about himself. He was taking a statement about himself, and they're saying, your testimony is about yourself, therefore you need a witness so it's not true. I know it's, it, I know it's a strange play on the words, but you have to see what they're going after and what he's trying to teach them. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Now here's why. Because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh and I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So he tricks them. Think about it. In all of the Jewish law, you understand from reading the Old Testament that really if there's going to be a conviction of something, you need a witness and you need a second witness. Two witnesses so that everything can be done rightly and in order. It's great if you have 500 witnesses, but basically you have to have two. And he says, I've got two. I've got me and my Father behind me. Remember, this word father is a weighty thing. We tend to see it in the New Testament more than others. It's only whispered of in the Old Testament, but it means God the Father. And when he says, I know where I came from, he's saying that he came from heaven. In other words, the preexistence of Christ is on display here. How do they know that he's the Messiah? Well, I have a witness, and it's my Father who witnesses of me. This gets down to this thing about judging. Uh, You know, and I know it's difficult. I got kind of dragged into a thing this week where... You know, there were these people that were kind of attacking an old church that I know very well. And I knew the situation very well. So I did a little Facebook post and a couple of people were like, who's he talking about? Well, nobody in specific, but just the situation where often there are people that go out of a church and they go out in a huff and they're mad. And then they speak all kinds of bad things about the church. And, you know, they stomp their feet on the way out. And usually it's something about this. Those people are judgmental and unloving. So they're judging the church about being judgmental, which is kind of strange, right? But also at the same time, what I have found is that when that situation happens and people stomp out in a huff, you know, doing all shaking their fist at the church, there's usually another side to the story, right? And sometimes that side of the story is easy and sometimes that side of the story is hard, but the idea that the church would judge just seems completely foreign to them. I'll tell you what usually comes out of it 
because I've had to be on investigatory panels and stuff when stuff happened. Usually the person that goes out with their fist in the air, cursing the church and stuff like that, they were the one that was in sin. Is it always true? Certainly not, because anybody can be in sin. We are that other kind of church that admits every week that we're sinners in need of grace and not the righteous people judging the unrighteous people. The anger and the hostility and the nastiness manifest in somebody is usually a triggering response to something going on in their own soul that has nothing to do with that church. Who died for the church? Jesus Christ. Who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ. This church and every church is his church. He loves his church. He is not under any delusion that we are perfect here. If any of us were perfect, then Christ died in vain. He died for an imperfect, sinful people. But the church is still his means to the well-being of the world. And he usually mediates salvation through his church. In other words, through the preaching and teaching of his word. He calls his people together to be in a church. One of the things we've gone over, you know, for the past few weeks is just the, the relevance of the institutional church in history. Not just you as the church out there alone, but that you're actually a member in concert with other people. Just like you're stronger in a marriage than you are alone, and you're stronger in the context of your family than you are alone, you're stronger in the world in regard to the works of the devil in a church than you are on your own. I'm going to tell you something, and I don't mean it to be scary, but I do mean it to be a warning. The people that have left the church and just tried to do it on their own with Jesus, I've never seen one of them succeed. And that's a lot of years of ministry. Usually they can hold on for a while, and then things get a little, uh, but eventually they end up in a mess, because we're just not made to be on our own. Do you remember those books from the 1970s? You know, I used to read them, and one of them was called How to Not Be Codependent. And I would look at that and be like, yeah, you don't want to be codependent. You want to be your own man and stuff like that. Then I found out we're all codependent and designed by God to be depending on other people on a constant basis, that we are not emotionally, spiritually, or even physically really suited to be completely on our own. We are not okay alone, not meant for loneliness, not meant to be alone in any way, together with Christ, together with people. There we're strong, there we're safe. Why do you think... Jesus would leave the 99 sheep and go after the one that went astray. What is almost certainly going to happen to that one sheep that's astray? Lunch to just about anything. How many things will eat a sheep? <laughs> All of them. But he says, I judge no one. Now, some so we can get the wrong impression, right? And we all remember from the most famous sermon of all, don't you judge folks or he will judge you with the same measure Hey, first pull the plank out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do we all remember that? But he did say to take the plank out of your eye because once the plank's out of your eye, you can see. The analogy only does what it's supposed to do. But there is a, here's the thing. This is so hard because of this. He tells you not to judge and then he tells you to judge. He tells you to judge sometimes, but don't judge other times. He always tells you not to be a judgmental person in the circumspect nature of your heart because that's a heart problem, not a judgment problem, right? If you have elected yourself judge-in-chief over the people, well, you got a problem. But even Jesus here says, I don't judge. Yet even if I do judge, he says... My judgment's true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and my Father. Now, what's the relevance of the Father doing some judging? Does he know everything? He does. Is he perfectly good? 
he is. Is there anybody more worthy to judge? There's not. At the same time, does he have to judge? He actually has to judge. Now we do get into the cosmic calculus of the game of life here, and sometimes it's hard for folks. You were born to be judged. You're not a pet. You're a person. You're expected to grow to a state where you grow to maturity that pleases God so that in the next life, you can do better than in this one. You're going to grow, you're going to change, and on the last day, let's just take a look at it. Let's take a look at Revelation. I know everybody loves a good Revelation verse. You write a book on the Revelation, you'll make a million dollars. Doesn't even have to be good. From the Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, the earth and sky, fled from his presence. That's chapter 20, verse 11. But they found no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both the great and the small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in his books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. The first death is your physical death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So you have to remember that if the church brings up judging, they should do it carefully and nuanced and with a lot of scripture around it. But there's a judging that's going to happen. You're not going to avoid getting judged. It's just whether or not that's going to be a good or a bad day for you. You guys remember Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham, the father of Franklin Graham, who uh, John and Deborah are working with over there. He used to always have this thing where there'll be, I loved his voice, there'll be a great television screen. I don't know if there's going to be a television screen. It's probably an 85 inch, but there'll be a big screen and he'll show everybody your whole life. And it doesn't say any of that in the Bible. It says that he will judge. It doesn't say everybody else will get, everything will be known. Every hidden thing will be made clear. There's nothing you're going to be able to hide from God. That's what's being said when he brings in the father on his behalf. He says, if I judge, it's okay. Because it's not just me judging, it's the Father also who knows everything. If you trust God enough to be a perfect and just God, you have to also trust him with his judgment over everything you do in the body, whether good or evil. So that's what he's saying here. When, so they say this to him, verse 19. They said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now this is a hard verse. These are the Jews, the believing Jews that have gathered together in this place. There are definitely other Jews in other places that he said, you are believers in my father, right? But he's talking to these guys that are working in the temple. Hey, face it, these are the pastors. These are the priests. And he's saying, look, you don't know me. You don't know my father. If you knew my father, you'd know me. If you knew me, you'd know him. So you don't know either one of us. He's basically saying, you're not my people. So I don't really have to answer you. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury was a specific area of the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not come. So he said to them, I'm going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die die in your sins. 
Now, what phrasing do you, you know, you know what's the worst thing about texting people or like writing things on Facebook and stuff? It's so hard to provide context and tone. Sometimes things sound incredibly harsh when somebody's saying something incredibly simple. Sometimes things are, you know, irritating or threatening when somebody's just saying, I'm going to the store, right? What do you, do you think he was yelling? Do you think he was mad? Do you think he was hostile? Because I think he was sad. I think he was quiet. And he's just telling them a profound truth that he wants them to know in the hope that they will turn from this thing and know life. Because as it was, even as the pastors, he's telling them, if you don't change, you're going to die in your sins. It's a hard teaching. There's this other place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where this other thing is said that gives context and form to the time when Jesus said, don't judge. Because so many times the Bible says don't judge and then it tells you to judge and frankly it's confusing. But why, when, where, and how? What if, you, what if you owned a shop and somebody came in, say you owned a gas station and somebody came in and stole your money at gunpoint and you were a witness so you went into the courtroom and the judge was there and the attorneys were there and you know they make their case and then the judge says at the end after all the evidence has been shown and he knows with perfect certainty that the person has robbed the gas station and he says, but who am I to judge? And he lets them go. Next thing, somebody comes in the same gas station, murders somebody. And you go into the same court and all the evidence is presented and the guilty person. And he says, eh, but who am I to judge? Well, your name is judge. In the Bible, when the Apostle Paul is explaining these things, he says, the elders, the overseers among you, they are correspondent to the Old Testament judges. If something bad happens, they are the ones that get to decide it. So I tell you, be careful who you make a judge because they might be judging you someday. And here's the thing. You remember in the old theologies of the church, right? It goes back hundreds and even thousands of years where they said it's not a true church unless it has the true preaching and teaching of the word of God, the right administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. They said even if it has the right preaching and teaching of the word of God, that doesn't mean it's a true church. Because anybody can read this stuff. But unless there is actual judgment of good and evil, and unless the innocent can be protected from the aggressive and belligerent, it's not a true church. And by that I mean a local church. That's been the norm for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's only now today that we've lost it. So here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing because he wants to correct them in something. You have to remember that he wouldn't be writing it gratuitously. The reason we get so many things out of the Apostle Paul and the 13 books he wrote in the New Testament is because he's telling you the stuff that either needs new, more nuance and explanation or things left unsaid. So if we got the idea from Jesus that there's never a time to exercise any judgment in regard to the right or wrongdoing of any person, he wants to correct this. So in verse 9 he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of the world or the greedy swindlers and idolaters of the world, because then you'd need to leave the world. And that is not your time yet. He says, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who's calling themselves a Christian who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard. In other words, he's saying it's not just sexual immorality. It's all of these things. If they manifest this in their outward public life, uh, you're not even supposed to eat with such a person. Now, that should remind you of the Old Testament Jewish law because he's simply restating it. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? He is an apostle. He is an evangelist. He's dealing with the church. 
He's not really paying attention to everything that goes on in the world. He considers it not really that much of his business. What can he do about it? The whole world is Christ, but let Christ take care of that. But in the church, he says, is it not to judge those inside the church? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 1, just following his thought, because this isn't really a change of chapter, even though the numbers change. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare to go to law with the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, if a person who's a Christian has a problem with another person that's a Christian, the church should be able to handle that so we don't display all our dirty laundry in front of the world. In other words, suing people in the world is not the way that we handle our business. But he says it so we can know how things should be judged. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world. Now, here's where you get into judgment. This time, this place, these people around you, those people out there, it's not for you to judge. What kind of a person are that you would go around judging everybody? But he does want you to know there's a judgment coming, and guess who the judges will be? It will be you. And then you will be ready for that and trained for that through the knowledge of his word and through your experiences in life. But on that last day, in that great white throne judgment where all the throngs of God are gathered together, you will be at Christ's right hand and you also will be judging. Judging righteousness and unrighteousness. He says it plainly here. You're not getting it around it. You don't judge now, but you will judge then. Did Jesus come as a judge? He did not. He said, if he judges, it's fine. He's allowed, but he's not here to judge. He's here to invite you to the grace of God in his own person and work. He's here to save you. He's here as a lamb, but he's coming back as what? Lion. Face it. Lions eat lambs. That's not a nice analogy. He is coming in grace and mercy, but he's coming again in judgment, and you will come with him. What do you think is supposed to happen when you rise to meet him in the air on the last day? If we're still alive, right? But first, the graves will broke open, and those who have gone before us, they will rise first, and we will all rise to meet him in the air for the great wedding of the Lamb and his people. And the first thing of worship there will be is the judgment of all flesh. It's a heavy, heavy thing. But what he's saying here is that you, as a kingdom of priests, called to God, a royal priesthood and part of his family, you're in on all of it. You're not a passive observer in anything that happens in the Bible or anything that happens in the church. You're a participant. And he says, don't you know that you will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent, incompetent to judge trivial cases? Now, this is why he expects us to have some kind of judgment on these things. Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more then can we judge matters pertaining to the simple things of this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's talking about the civil authorities. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the disputes between brothers and sisters? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits settled against another is already defeat to you. In other words, you're already losing. Why not rather suffer the wrong than be de and be defrauded than drag your neighbor into court? Now, it is true that sometimes even in the churches, bad things happen, and sometimes somebody won't submit to the leadership in the church in regard to a specific case, and it ends up in the worldly courts. That's sad but true. It happens, and there's nothing else you can do. But at the same time, your intentionality should be that we will come together in brothers and sisters, and we will work it out. Who do you think is going to be more harsh, the people of the church or the people of the world? Well, I'll tell you what, we ain't sticking nobody in jail, and we don't have no death penalty. I'll tell you that right now. 
But at the same time, the disputes that you have between you and the judgment that you have toward your neighbor, he even goes as far as to say here, why don't you just let it go? Can't you see that he's saying that? Would you not rather be defrauded? Would you not rather suffer wrong? I talked to you before about, you know, there was this big uh, theological conundrum uh, out in California between uh, the different theologies of are you allowed to forgive someone that hasn't asked for forgiveness and repented? I'll say it again. Are you allowed to forgive someone that hasn't asked your forgiveness or repented? Well, I was on this panel and I said, you know, uh, so I asked him what he would rather have his wife do. You and me need to be redundant forgivers all the time. You know what water does on a duck's back? It rolls off. That's why it's a duck. Try it with a dog. It doesn't work. At the same time, when you see minor offenses and words are said and callous things enter in and there's little jabs and little pokes, come on, especially you guys, be a man about it. Let it go. Don't let it get to you. Don't get angry. Don't start to chew on it. Don't let your pride and your, and your envy get in there. Let everything go that can be let go. Frankly, we all know the rule. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's wrong to let something go, and it needs to be confronted, and it needs to be worked out. And if it can't be worked out, then it needs to be judged by competent people who God set in place to do that thing. But at the same time, like 99.9% .9 of stuff should never get to this place. He even says, let yourself be defrauded. Is he talking about letting somebody steal your house? I bet he's not. But in just about anything, let it go. Just not that big a deal. It's certainly not disrupting Christ and his work on earth for the petty grievances that we have against each other. So I hate to tell you both, but he's saying both. On the one side, he says, don't judge. On the other side, he says, you better judge. And then he says, even if you could judge, don't judge. And then he says, but on the last day, you will all judge. And he finds you competent to do these things in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, on these things, we know that like most things in your word, there are different levels to this. It might be hard for us. But first of all, do not let us be an anxiety-driven, fearful, proud, or vain people that just can't wait to judge another human being. We know that that is grievous to your heart, and it's not the kind of person that you are. It's not the kind of people you call us to be. And yet at the same time, when there is a judgment to be executed and it must be done, give us the courage and the balance to rightly do these things in a way that pleases you. And in all things, Lord, let Christ be preeminent in our hearts. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Chris at Grace View Church in South Haven, Mississippi. Reach us at graceviewchurch.org. You can reach us at graceviewchurch.org.